This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Well, hey guys, welcome back to the Worth Your Time podcast. I'm your host, Erica Anderson, and today I'm lucky enough to be able to have a conversation with my very own best friend. Michelle Cordero is a top communication strategist at the Heritage Foundation. She's the author of a very fun cookbook that everyone needs to pick it up. Pick up. Just look for her name on Amazon. She's a mom to Austin and Lily and a wife to Nick. She's also a woman who's been through a lot, growing up without a father in a home where she sometimes witnessed domestic violence. Despite struggling with depression and trauma from her past, Michelle's been able to rise above, pursue a career that she loves in Washington, D.C., and build the life for herself that she always wanted. It's pretty admirable, as you'll hear in this interview. We talk a lot about this and a lot more in today's episode. And moms, there are some really important bits of wisdom for you in here, I think. So stay tuned for that second half of the conversation to get that. Enjoy this interview with Michelle, friends. Okay, Michelle, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you for having me, Erica. Well, I want to give you just a little intro to our guests. Um, You are the digital content manager at the Heritage Foundation, where you have worked for seven years. You had to tell me seven because I thought five. I can't believe it's been so many years. (laughs) Yes, we are really getting old. We are getting very old. Um, But there, you host and produce one of the best, I think, best short-form podcasts out there right now. It's called Heritage Explains. Um, And you are just basically tackling sometimes difficult policy issues and breaking them down simply enough for people to understand them. So that's, that's, I think, a really awesome thing about what you're doing over at Heritage. And then you are also mom to two very cute kids. And also, you're my best friend, so we can't leave that out. Um, so before we get into kind of your personal story, let's, let's tell the story of how we met. Do you want to give the story? Yeah, it's funny because anytime I go for a walk outside of our office here on Capitol Hill, um, I kind of like tell people that story anyway, because so many people here know you. Um, and I'm like, see that building over there, Erica and I used to live right there. (laughs) Um, But yeah, Erica and I met through our internships at the National Journalism Center in Washington, D.C. You came from, were you living in South Carolina then? Kind of. I had been living there, and then I went back home to Indiana, and then I came to D.C., so pretty much. Yeah, and I was coming straight out of college in Connecticut, um, and we were both kind of crossing our fingers, hoping for the best, following our dreams in journalism to the swamp. And I knew, I literally knew upon seeing you that we were going to become best friends. <laughs> I well, did. And I think the other thing was, I don't know about you, but I felt like I was the old intern. Like I was like, oh my gosh, everyone else is just graduated college or like is 21. And you know, I'm yeah. 23 or 24 and however old we were. Um, and I just thought I was so old. And now looking back, that's such a silly notion. I know I- I was, I, you know, but I still sometimes we have a lot of interns here in the workplace and I think, gosh, they're so smart. 
you know, I, I was not doing internships in college, to be quite honest. I was um, working and partying um, and yeah. trying to also, you know, balance getting decent grades. Um, internships were not what I was thinking of. And in hindsight, that would have been really responsible of me. But at least I did it after, right? Well, I kind of wish college would have required me to do an internship because that would have made me do it. But because it didn't, I was like, eh, I'm not going to do that. And I have no plan for my life. And I have no clue what's going on. Um, which, but God has a plan because here yes, we are. Because it, it worked out. It definitely worked out. So we had a good, um, a good. I don't know. T- I lived there for almost ten years, and we had some really fun times doing the young in your twenties DC thing. Um, but during that time, we also got to work together and live together, and you know, meet our husbands at around the same time. We're here to talk about you today, Michelle. And one of the things uh, about you that I've always really um, admired is that you came through kind of a tough childhood and a tough past, but it's not something that you've ever dwelled on. Um, you were able to overcome some some circumstances that not everyone um, has to go through as a kid. And I want to talk to you a little bit about some of those things you went through. Can you take us back to your growing up years and where you were born, what your childhood was like, and what are some of the things that you did go through that helped mold you into the person that you are today? Yeah, so um, it's funny. I've talked about so many things in my career, and our lives are so vi- like visibly out there. I know yours is as well through, through your blog and your book, um, but this is one of the things that I've not talked as much about. Um, but I was born in Fairfield, Connecticut, Bridgeport, Connecticut, actually, um, which is the southern tip of Connecticut, close to New York City. And, um, to a single mom, my father, um, left before I was born and was never in the picture. And, um, my mom worked really hard, um, to do her best, but also struggled from bipolar disorder and, um, making some pretty bad just relationship and life choices. Um, and they definitely affected me as a kid. There wasn't a whole lot of stability, but more importantly to that, I was exposed to a lot of um, really difficult domestic violence, um, things that I still struggle with today. We also moved a lot. Um, I went to multiple different high schools, and um, it's not important to everyone, but for some reason, being popular was important to me. and I made some bad choices because I was trying to fit in and didn't get along with some of my stepdads and got into some trouble. And um, gosh, that whole part of my life, it, you know, it's funny, it feels like a a whole different person. Like it was a dream, like it didn't really happen. Um, But sometimes that's comforting to know that I think that that was probably the worst part of my life. And perhaps it'll never get that bad again. And I'm, I'm over that. Or if something terrible was to happen that I've been through it before, and I know I can get through it again. And at that time in your life when you were a teenager, you, you went to live with your grandpa, right? I did. It was after a, a really bad patch um, where I became depressed um, and I tried to take my own life as a 16-year-old. Um, and at that point, my mom thankfully um, made a good decision and decided to send me to live with my grandfather back in Connecticut. And my grandfather had always kind of remained this constant male figure in my life, which I think was helpful. No one's perfect. I do think that a lot of the lessons that I learned that helped shape me into the person that I am today, I learned from him. Well, what was it, what was it about him that, that had those attributes that you took and were able to kind of incorporate into your own life? 
Um, you know, one of the most important lessons he taught me, and I'll never forget it. I had gotten in trouble one day. He just has this like stoic nature about him. He's a voice actor. And so he's got this deep bo booming voice. And he was angry with me for something and told me, you know, do you know what character is? And I didn't say anything. No. He said, character is doing the right thing when no one's looking. And that stuck with me. And although I was raised Catholic, my mom took me to church and I was confirmed. I was baptized. We, you know, we went to church. We were participating members of the Catholic church, despite the instability in my life. And I don't know. I, I don't know that those morals followed through with me as much as that moment when my grandfather said that to me. Some of it, I think, is due to maturity, too. You know, sometimes you just don't get it. You know, young people's brains just aren't tuned in. You think it's all about you and you're in this little bubble where everything revolves around you and your feelings. And then one day you wake up and realize there's a whole outside world around you. And um, those decisions you make are affecting other people, not just you. Yeah, it's always so interesting to look at someone's life and see how did they rise above? How did they rise above the statistics? Because a lot of times kids that have grown up in domestic violence situations or um, with parents struggling with mental illness, uh, that kind of a thing, you know, you often those kind those people are going to follow that path. There's a much higher likelihood that you two are going to enter into a, an abusive relationship or struggle with a mental illness. Um, and so it sounds like your grandpa, obviously, he was such a huge influence in your life. Is there anything else that you feel like gave you the strength and resilience to overcome some of the odds? You know, I can't say that there's there's one thing that I think gave me the resilience to overcome the odds. A part of me truly believes some of this is nature over nurture, that some of us just have this something inside of us that helps us endure and push through where others don't. Um, I know a lot of people don't like that answer, but I, I just don't feel like there was one thing other than that. I The only thing, if there's one thing, that pops in my mind is my desire to have something different and provide more for a family of my own one day to break that cycle that kept me moving forward. I mean, was there anybody that you saw or looked to where you were like, I want to have that kind of life? Did you ever have that vision in your mind? Yeah. And sometimes that's, sometimes that's one of my flaws. You know, part of what I didn't mention, you know, my mom, um, despite her mental disorders and some of the bad decisions she made, she really tried her best to give me the best life possible. When we lived in the worst possible part of town um, and she was working um, long hours trying to become a nurse, um, she drove me all the way clear across the other side of town to a different school district. We lied and said that I lived with my grandfather. And I went to uh, an elementary school with kids whose parents were millionaires um, and didn't have a care in the world. Meanwhile, you know, throughout that time, there were times when I was exposed to things that those, I mean, maybe some of those kids were exposed to domestic violence. I don't know. But, but I recognize that those kids went on trips that I didn't go on, that they had the type of clothes that I maybe wanted and didn't have. And so I, I saw people living in places that I wanted to one day live in and have stable lives that I one day wanted to have. Um, and I watched their careers and I watched their lives and what they did. And I think in some ways, her choice to step out of her comfort zone and drive me to that better school district helped form who I am today, too. Yeah, it's like it gave you a vision of opportunity that you wouldn't have seen. Were you going to a school where those kinds of 
you know, homes or careers or families were not, you wouldn't have seen that in such a, such an obvious way. Exactly. But at the same time, it it has create created faults. I mean, sometimes I find that I'm far too materialistic and I put too much emphasis on clothing or vacations, but I know where it comes from and I own it. (laughs) So uh, turning back to your job um, and, and how you got to where you are now, how did you know you wanted to work in politics and journalism? What led you in that direction? Um, yeah, so I started off, I thought I wanted to teach high school English. I think at heart, I'm really a creative. Um, I consider myself a writer, um, a bit of a poet, and a storyteller. And that's what I studied in college. I was an English literature major, and I thought I wanted to be a poet. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but that's what I was going to do. <laughs> and then... Um, um, my grandfather always listened to Rush Limbaugh and my, my conservative roots definitely go back to him. I remember coming home and Rush Limbaugh was on the radio. Um, and after 9-11, I got more interested in politics and I decided to write for my school newspaper. And that's where that sort of fork in the road led me down that path instead, where I veered away from politics and more towards journalism because there was a more clear cut monetary path there than just deciding to be a poet. Yeah, I don't know too many rich poets. Yeah, no, it doesn't really work out. <laughs> so you came to D.C., you interned, and then a lot of people listening won't know who we're talking about, but you you got this internship with this famous political D.C. journalist named Robert Novak. Tell us about that experience. I did. It's funny. You're, and who he is. Um, you had a recent guest on, Carrie Sheffield, who also was Bob yes. Novak's intern. I remember hearing her say that in the episode as I listened. But yeah, he he's a famous um, DC reporter known for a scandal um, that I can't think of off the top of my head. But he was known as the Prince of Darkness, and yeah. you know, at the time in DC, if you said you worked for Robert Novak, um, everybody knew who he was. They called him the the last of the shoe leather reporters in DC. He did everything by phone. Everything was very old school. His office was very small, um, and I knew it was like the real deal. My very first day, I picked up the phone and I said, hello, Evans and Novak Political Report, which was the name of his office. And they said, yes, this is Air Force One calling for Mr. Novak. Um, and I, I I couldn't believe that the, you know, the Air Force One, the president's airplane was, I was talking to them on the phone. It was crazy. Um, and I knew that I really was going to have to buckle down and, and really do a good job and make some connections because this internship could really help kickstart my career, which was exactly what I was looking for. I had no idea when we started that internship how many opportunities it would have. I had no idea that it was going to put us in direct uh, contact with like really big names and you know big people that could could be extremely important to where we were going to go next. And of course, well, first of all, I want to say that you did the research or did some of the research for Bob Novak's um, memoir, Prince of Darkness, which is a massive, huge book about his life, but very, um, really fascinating look at his work because he had the sources and, and truly the scoop that no one else had because he was so trusted by so many people. Um, but secondly, I always, you know, the story because I tell it sometimes, but you got you invited me to be your guest to the book party uh, that for Novak's book, and there at the book party, to unbeknownst to us that he was going to be there, was the sitting vice president of the United States, Dick Cheney, and it was like very surreal. Uh, do you remember that moment? I do, I do remember it. 
I mean, I think it's really hard. Like a lot of people, you know, um, a lot of people ask like, who do you want to meet? Like, who's your, like, if you could meet any celebrity, who would it be? And I always, because of that moment, I think, and because of the opportunities that were afforded to us at that time in our life, I always have to like really think about it because, you know, you, you make it to meet them, but just think about it. Like, you know, we realized now we have to walk up to him and we can't just say hi and shake his hand. What are we going to say? And I wouldn't have done it myself. You kind of, you led the way and you walked up to him and it was, his wife was there too. And somehow nobody was talking to them at the moment, which I know, is really they were weird. standing by themselves. I think everyone was intimidated, maybe. Yeah. But well, I don't you know said hello said first. anything, you know, with, with substance. I think that we were just kind of freaking out and said hi and shook his hand. And You asked him if he read the book. I remember that. I, I don't know what made me think of that. I'm sure we just... <laughs> grasping for straws at the moment. Well, that was one of my coolest experiences. And I always say I ran outside immediately afterward to call my dad and say, Dad, I just met the vice president of the United States. And I think you you had told me you had a friend that couldn't quite get what you were saying. You're like the vice president. And he was like, you mean the vice president of your company? No, actually, <laughs> like, funny. No. It, was, it was a guy I was dating who turned out to be a jerk. And of course. Yes, I dated lots of jerks until I met my <laughs> husband. And, um, yeah, I told him and he was like, Oh, how wonderful. You met the vice president of your company. Like, that's very nice. And I was like, no, the vice president of the United States. So after leaving, uh, Novak's office, tell us, give us your career path to where you are now. Yeah. So I got to stay a little bit longer in his office. They offered me a paid position to help him finish his memoirs. And then after that, I went to work for, um, a conservative newspaper that doesn't exist anymore. It's called Human Events. Although I don't know if you saw that someone purchased Human Events and they're going to nope. start it up again. Oh, no, I didn't know that. Yes. Um, and after that, I went to, um, you know, you and I worked really hard at that newspaper. I did a lot of reporting. Um, I did a, a lot of Fox News TV hits during the 2008 um, presidential election. And I got really burnt out as a reporter and decided that I needed a little bit of a break and that I probably could make a little bit more money if I pivoted it into um, communications in general as a communications director for perhaps a Senate office or House office or a nonprofit or some other organization. Um, And I did. I left and went for Oliver North's nonprofit. Um, They give scholarships to children whose parents um, were killed in the line of duty. That was a fun experience. I was there. It was kind of a quieter time in my career. I felt good about the work that I was doing, but I was a little bored. Um, but I think it was good. Everything happens for a reason. You know, I met Nick. We fell in love and um, we got engaged. And I started my blog, worked on recipes and took photos and explored other creative aspects, not just political writing. And then um, when I felt that I really wasn't quite as fulfilled as I wanted to be and was looking to go someplace different, I came again to work with you at the Heritage Foundation, where I am now. Listeners may know the Heritage Foundation as the largest, most influential conservative think tank in the country. Um, In fact, there are, I don't know, probably dozens or at least tens of, uh, of people that left Heritage in 2016 to go work for the administration. Um, and for that, I'm thankful because they're really smart people that work at the Heritage Foundation that are providing great policy 
guidance for the White House that mm-hmm. they need. Um, but but that means you're a conservative woman, as am I. And sometimes there are stereotypes out there. What do you think? How do you see stereotypes playing into the conversation about conservative women, and how do you push back on those? This is a hard question because I just really wish there wasn't uh, stereotypes about conservative women. I feel like we've gotten to such a place with identity politics, like the fact that that even comes up just really kind of irritates me. I hope that people don't stereotype me a certain way. I know that maybe there are a handful of maybe some of um, my friends on Facebook who know where I work and what I do, who might let it rub them the wrong way. But what I wish that they knew is that this is my job and this is what I do. I work at the Heritage Foundation and I have conservative beliefs. And But it's my job here as a content creator, um, I think, to take those policies and turn them into stories and create content that could help people understand these policies in a, in a less wonky way where they don't have to read a boring white paper where they can connect them to their everyday life. Um, but, you know, my blog... I have a blog and published a book on jello shots. On the weekends, I, I do normal things. Like you would never look at me and think, that's a conservative woman right there. You know, <laughs> it's just people act like it's you're checking a box, you're either this or you're that. And it's so much more than that. We're people. We're, you know, we're not, our identities aren't based in our politics. You hear people say, oh, you're, you vote against your own interest. You are, you know, subject to the patriarchy kind of thing. And that was just always it makes me laugh because it's, it's just so the opposite of how I feel about what I believe, because I, I feel like what I believe is empowering to, to women and to all people. And so um, I guess I like to push back on that narrative because it's actually kind of almost offensive when you hear people saying it to you. No one seems to really confront me on those things. Nick and I have been um, going to lots of open houses. We're just exploring our options for that one day when maybe we get to um, buy a bigger house. And every time we meet a realtor and they, you know, Nick says, I work on Capitol Hill. And then they ask me where I work. I get nervous and I'm like, oh gosh, I have to tell them where I work. Are they going to like shoot daggers at me with their eyes? Um, and the majority of the time people are, are actually kind of excited. I I haven't gotten anyone who gives me a dirty look or gets quiet and doesn't say anything. Um, But I also, you know, to my liberal friends who would not say that to me, but I know maybe they're thinking that, I do a lot of proactive talking, um, talking about how flexible they are at the Heritage Foundation. How I've gotten, you know, I've climbed the ranks here um, as a woman with a family and how family friendly they are. I understand that there are places out there may promote men when they find out that their wife is pregnant, um, but may not promote a woman when they find out that she is pregnant. Here at the Heritage Foundation, that's just not how it works. So I sort of like to tell people that as often as I can, because I was a pregnant woman that you know received a promotion into management. It's, I don't think it's a conservative thing, you know, where people think that we feel that way. I think it's a people thing. I yeah, I, I mean, I feel, no, I feel the same way about my job, Independent Women's Forum, because everyone here, everyone that works for us is a woman, and we have a lot of babies on our staff, and those babies, they don't stop promotions, they don't stop work. Like, you've been married to your husband, Nick, for almost eight years, and you have two pretty young kids. So tell me how you guys met and then talk to me about how you keep things working in a healthy way in your marriage when things are very stressful with two parents that have a full-time jobs and commutes and all of that. 
funny because I was doing lots of online dating at the time and my mom kept telling me, go to church or, you know, telling me like all these healthy ways to, to find someone to meet and I wouldn't listen to her. And then sure enough, we were doing um, some volunteer work with a friend of ours. Um, what was the name of the group? Yeah, I think it was Servathon. Um, but we were painting a map of the United States on a playground in um, inner DC for kids. And Nick happened to be also a volunteer with that group. And so we met doing um, community service in our little in, in DC. And we were pretty much together from that point moving forward. Yeah, marriage definitely gets harder after kids for sure. Um, especially when you add full-time jobs with commutes. Nick and I are constantly trying to find ways um, to keep working on our relationship. I think I personally am always advocating for personal growth in ourselves. Like I, I really think it's important that Nick has activities outside of being a husband and a dad and a worker that make him who he is. So, um, you know, he plays basketball or make sure he plays golf or, you know, he's doing some sort of activity that helps him remember who he was before he became a dad and a husband. And I try and do the same. Um, but it's funny because like we're, we're doing, he'll probably kill me for, for talking about this, but at the same time, I, I think it's important. I, you know, I have to come up with lists, you know, I battle depression sometimes. And so I create these lists that I can go back to that remind me in the moments when I think, gosh, nothing will cheer me up right now. I'm just really down and I don't know how I'm going to get out of this funk. I go back to my list of the things that when I do them, they always make me feel better. Um, things that make me feel happy and, and things that I can fall back into. And so Nick's having a bit of a hard time at his job right now. I wanted him to create that list. And so I thought I should try and sit down and start this list for him because, you know, he's not into these type of psychological activities that I'm into. Um, I couldn't finish the list. And I felt like, oh my gosh, we've been married almost eight years and I can't come up with like the things that I think will make him happy. And so I felt really bad about it. We talked and he was t kept telling me, you know, I'm, I'm a simple man, you know, your list is good. It's it's not going to be, the list isn't going to look the same as yours. Um, but he finished it today and he sent it to me and it like warmed my heart that he actually like finished the list and sent it to me. And now we both have these lists. He has mine and I have his, we have these lists of these things that we know when we're down in the dumps, these things make us happy. And now I know like, here's how I can help him. It's kind of like a love language type of thing, I guess. Yeah. Um, that's a good idea. But yeah, yeah. And I think just continuing to make sure that you care about the doing those type of things for your spouse and making time for yourself and allowing them to make time for themselves. Those are the things that are going to get you through. Well, what kinds of things are on your list? Oh, my list is so silly compared to his. He really is like, Nick is, you know, he's so selfless. Like, what makes him happy, you know, is to see his family happy. But that's why I forced him to to give other answers. But mine is like um, going to Sephora. I, I love <laughs> like I love Sephora. I love makeup. I love skincare products. I love researching skincare lines. Um, 
I like to take pictures. Um, so just exploring photography. I like to paint. Um, you know, I don't know how many times I see one of those things pop up on my Facebook feed where those paint and sip classes where I'm like, oh, I really want to go do that. And then I don't go do it. Traveling, planning, planning little adult getaway trips of just two days, you know, two nights can do wonders for parents of young children who also work. It doesn't seem like very much time, but it is. And um, that's definitely on my list. Do you have any little daily habits or things that you do kind of similar to those things on your list, but in a smaller amount of time um, that really help you get through your day? Anything that you're like, if I don't do this, I'm off, you know, things like that. So I'm a list maker. So I have, you know, in terms of productivity at work, I have a list of things that I have to accomplish by the end of the week. And um, if I don't check off at least two of those things, um, I definitely feel like I haven't had a productive day. So when I sit down at my desk, knowing that I need to check off at least two of those things, that really kind of helps me keep my center at work. I want to talk about something else. Uh, you had a really good friend of yours pass away from cancer a couple of years ago. Her name's Darcy. And I know, was that the closest person to you that has passed away? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I had a boyfriend pass away, but um, I hadn't seen him in, you know, a very, very long time after he tragically was killed in a car accident. Um, and Darcy was the person who, um, passed away that definitely, you know, I was closest to her in my most current life. You know, in the past couple of years, two people then, um, that, you know, have died in a really tragic way. And we talk about this sometimes, but you know, death can really rearrange your perspective on life. And I'm just wondering what you've learned through that experience. Um, you know, she, she went through a year or so, maybe longer of going Mm -hmm. through cancer, going through chemo, trying to figure out if she was going to make it. Um, But ultimately, what did you learn from that experience? And what have you, how did it change the way that you live your life now looking back? I think what made it particularly hard for me and, and you were there for me too. You, you listened to me talk about it and go through it. And um, even some of my friends who didn't know her, it was hard for them because we identified with her because she has two children and a husband um, and was very similar Same in age. age. Yeah. So um, it, it really hit close to home. And I think you put it the right way in, in what did you learn from it? Um, I try and I try and face most of the crisis in our life that way. Like, what can I learn from this? Um, and what I learned is that life is short. There are so many times when um, Nick and I get planning for our future or maybe we get into an argument or something happens. And I remember that any day, any day, I can wake up like she did with a small pain in my back and assume that it's from Orange Theory or something else until the pain gets worse and worse. And then all of a sudden it's cancer, it's leukemia, and there's you know, a very slim survival rate. Any day that can happen. Tomorrow, can anything can happen. Um, so really trying to live in the present and remember what's important. I, she crosses my mind all the time. And then, um, of course, there was another person that we know that recently died, Bree, Bree Payton. And that was yeah. just another reminder of things that can happen so quickly. Um, but that kind of leads me to my next question, which is about friendship. 
Um, we are in our 30s. We have little kids. We work full time. Well, you hear this a lot that adults do not prioritize friendship, but you and I have both agreed that we think that is a really important part of life. So I just wanted to ask you, why do you think it's important to prioritize your friendships and just maintain those connections in the middle of all the other crazy stuff going on? I mean, don't we all need that one person that that's not our husband or not our mom? Um, I consider myself extremely blessed to even just have one. I mean, you've got your sisters, mm -hmm. but I'm an only child. Um, so if it's not Nick and it's not my mom, like, thankfully I have you. I, and I feel super blessed for that. There was a point in my life where I thought after it was right after Darcy passed away. And then, um, I, you know, you had moved you had moved before she passed away. And I thought, I don't have enough friends. I need more friends. I need more friends. And then I realized all of a sudden, you know, God answered my prayers. And I had, I had lots of friends, um, maybe more than I could manage. I think our friends are in our lives for different reasons. And everybody helps you in, in a different sort of way. But I, I do think it's important. But I will say that I think, you know, and I'm just gonna, you know, put us up on a pedestal. But I think that our our friendships rare. Um, and what you and I have been able to do for each other and facilitate over the years is not something that everyone is as blessed to have. So I feel really lucky for that. Well, and we also make plans, you know, we say you're coming here one summer, and then I yep. get to visit you the, the other summer. And I also yep. have the, the great fortune to be able to travel to DC a lot for work. And so then we get to have lunch and dinner and keep connected that way. Although I don't think that's kind of like the point, but it's just nice to be able to stay, you know, see you more often because of that, because of my job. But I totally agree with you. No, yeah, you're so right. Like we, we know that it's important and that we have, you know, we have this every other summer thing going. And, um, if it's so easy to let people, life is busy and it's so easy to just let those relationships pass by. And then everybody's had it happen, right? Where you like, don't talk to someone for a while. And then you're like, Oh, if we spend this time to catch up, it's going to be hours. Thankfully, I have lots of friends that I don't talk to very often, but we can catch up with and it, we go right back to where we left off. Um, but not everybody's able to do that. Sometimes there's resentment or it gets uncomfortable or you just fade away. Um, so that's why I think it's important to, if you have that one friend, if you have that friendship that you really think is important to, like you said, make sure it's a priority and you're putting forth the effort to stay in touch with that person and um, see them. So I want to ask you about role models. Now, everybody has them. Do you have any role models in your life, whether that be someone in your private life or someone that's more of a public figure, maybe that you don't know? Who do you look up to? Who do you want to be like, I guess. Right now, I think my boss, Maria, serves as a good role model for me. Um, we're close in age. She's a little bit older than I am, but um, she, you know, manages a large team of people. She has four kids. They are in a, um, like a full Mandarin immersion school. So they, they speak fluent Mandarin. Um, she has a loving husband. They have a great relationship she kind of does it all. And she's a, a great boss on top of it. Is her husband Asian? Um, no. Mm -mm. Jose is Portuguese. Oh, I was just wondering about the Mandarin thing. Yeah, no, it's just a charter school in DC. Um, they were lucky enough to get into that charter school in DC and um, so that they don't have to go to the public school in that area. 
Okay. Well, yeah. that's always a plus to speak a second language. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, like to me, anyone who can be a confident, successful woman in a full-time job, but still raise like smart, polite children and prioritize and care for their husband and have a good relationship, to me, they're a role model. What advice would you want to pass down to your children? What do you want um, Lily and Austin to grow up knowing that they took from you? So we've started talking to Austin about character and about doing the right thing when no one's looking. I mean, that's it kind of circles back to what I mentioned earlier on in our conversation. I saw a quote somewhere where I think it was this podcast that I've been listening to, a guy named Adam Grant, but it was, you know, it, I think it's part of a, a bigger quote, but don't raise your kids to um, have easy lives, but raise them to be able to endure a difficult one. Mm-hmm. That's what I want to make sure. I want to make sure that I'm not just trying to raise kids that go to good schools and get good grades, but raise kids that do the right thing when no one's looking and that if something difficult were to pop up, that they have the strength to endure it. Now you have had some parenting challenges that maybe not everyone has. What encouragement would you give to other parents who maybe are dealing with unexpected things in parenting? Trust your gut. I mean, you know your kid. I don't I don't think any parent should stick their head in the sand and pretend like their kid's an angel, but you are your your child's only advocate. And so, um, you know, we went through some things where at, at my son's preschool, they were, you know, telling me time and time again that um, something was something was off and you know, maybe he had ADHD or he was high energy or there was some aggression. And, you know, we knew our son and and we we did we went to doctors, we um, we went to therapists and nobody was seeing these things. And we even had a separate a separate teacher suggest that maybe he should be in um, a, a school for kids with disabilities. And here I am today, my son's in kindergarten and he's flourishing. I mean, we don't, you know, we have day-to-day problems because he's a, a boy um, and moms of boys, you know, that happens. Um, but gosh, if I had taken that advice and put my son in this school with kids that, that he didn't necessarily need to um, be in a learning environment with, just because one person told me that, we'd be in a whole different place. So, you know, you have to advocate for your kids and you have to make those decisions and you have to stand up for them. Um, don't just let some one teacher or some teacher tell you what's best. You know what's best as their parent. I think that's such an important lesson. And I remember going through that with you and hearing about all of the things that the teachers were saying. And I think another lesson out of that is just that sometimes things just take time and it doesn't mean the problems completely go away, but a lot of times they are partially part of a growing up phase that's just very difficult. And I think trusting your gut, yeah, I think that's that's really that's a really important lesson. Yeah, I mean and and obviously being active and involved, you know, I see so many parents that just um their kind of attitude is like to tell the school you know, to tell them off and be like, I'm paying you money. You're going to do what I say. We never had that attitude about it. I, I was always polite and, and, and as involved as I needed to be. So, and we still do that at Austin school. They have a program called, um, watchdog dads. My son is high energy and he's a character and he's amazing and great and wonderful. And everybody already knows who he is because he has <laughs> that much energy. 
Um, but that's why we try and make sure that we participate in programs around the school so that people know who we are and that he comes from a home where his parents care and we're here to help out. And those cookies in the break room are from the Corderos. Thank you. <laughs> and they're probably really good because you um, are a very creative cook in the kitchen. So, so, so much so that she has a book, you guys, which I'll link. Now, you said earlier that celebrities aren't your role models, but they may be someone that you want to be friends with. So the question now is, if you could have dinner or drinks with anyone famous, who would it be and why? This one's hard for me, and I know you're going to know why. Um, and, it, and it goes back to that conservative thing. So, like, it, it also goes back to the Dick Cheney thing. If you're going to sit down and have dinner or drinks with someone famous, you better have something to talk about. <laughs> That's true. Nick the other day was like, you should email Ivanka Trump and tell her what you're doing with Heritage Explains and ask her to lunch. I got all freaked <laughs> out because I was lunch, like, yeah. yeah, I was like, imagine if she said yes, which like she never would in a million years. But imagine if she did. What, what would I talk about? Like how intimidating? Well, I understand those policies. That's not what I would choose to talk about over drinks. Is that who lunch. you'd want to go to drinks with? No. No. I think that I would want to have dinner and drinks with Elizabeth Gilbert. Um, Ooh, good answer. Eat, Pray, Love was one of my favorite books in that time period that you and I, you know, went through together in our 20s. And then again, as a creative professional, um, trying to make decisions about what to do in my career and these endeavors and these passions I have and burning inside, what should I do this way or that way? Um, she's been really helpful with that too. And I also, you know, she says things that speak to me the same way people like Brene Brown do. But I know, and this is sad, if I tweeted her or if, and it's funny because actually she, she, remember she yes. like reposted one of my Instagrams. Yes, that was awesome. But if she knew who I was, never in a million years would she have drinks with me. And that kind of breaks my heart. Well, because maybe. she would, I mean, I don't know. She would be like, check that box. This is who you are. And, um, and that's because I'm conservative. Well, she almost, um, I mean, you, you know that she's liberal, but she also almost seems like the kind of person that's a little bit more laid back than your average political activist type. I hope so. Maybe I'm wrong. And maybe I'm looking at her through the same, you know, lenses that I don't want people to look at me yet. But she would be the person that I would want to talk to. Big Magic, her book, inspired me to finish my book. And I tried desperately to tag her in a million social media posts to see my... I even wrote a whole blog post like dedicated to her and like thanking her for Big Magic and inspiring me to, to finish my dream. And I thought that would do the trick, but I, I haven't heard from her. Although um, I, do don't, I don't think that she's super social media obsessed. Like last question, because I love to hear what people have to recommend. Have you read any books? Do you have any podcast recommendations? What has been on your radar lately that you would want to recommend to people? Yeah, so I actually just sent this one particular podcast episode to two friends today. Um, and I've listened to it twice now. And you know, I'm a big Super Soul Sunday fan. Mm -hmm. She, um, she just wrote a new book. And I'm pretty sure this is part of like a 
speaker series to promote that book, but it's part of the Super Soul Sunday podcast, and the episode is called Own Your Truth, um, and I sent it to two women this morning, and um, if you're a woman facing any sort of questions or just needing a little confidence boost, I think it's about a half an hour long, and like I think I want to listen to it like every day before work. That's how good it is. Well, you should have sent it to me. I need to listen to I'm, it. I will. I'll send well, it to I have Super Soul in my yeah. lineup, but... I am not always into it. Like I'm not really into the ones where she gets like talks about like meditation and really spiritual stuff. Um, so I end up skipping a lot of them, but I will go back and listen to that one for sure. If you recommend it that much. Yeah, some of them are hit and miss. Some of them I like, some of them I don't. Um, I like some of the more spiritual ones. Um, but others, you know, I think you just have to decide which ones you like or you don't. Another one. Um, and I've been like really into this topic lately, um, but Sean Anker's The Happiness Advantage. Oh, I need, I keep meaning to listen to something from him. Yeah. And then also Gretchen Rubin's The Happiness Project. Um, again, as a person who struggles with depression from time to time, um, I love those type of books. And, you know, the, the Happiness Project is really just something you could refer to all the time. Kind of like those lists that I created with Nick, things that we could go back to. The Happiness Project um, is awesome for that purpose. Yeah, we need like lists of books that we can just, okay, go consult this chapter and you'll, <laughs> you'll get back on track. Yeah, and then one more. Okay. Um, Adam Grant's podcast, Work Life, which is part of TED.com. Mm. Um super interesting. And I actually thought of you in one of the episodes, one, because, um, he was interviewing, um, that, that marathon runner, Shailene, what's her last name? Shailene Flanagan. Yes. So he interviewed her and, um, another woman who is one of her competitors. And they talked about how, um, you should make friends with your competitors that you actually perform better. Mm when you have competition and that whoever your rival is, when they are doing well, you are as well. Yeah. And when they're not, you know, you also are falling further behind and it's all those type of workplace philosophies, mm -hmm. um, that just like help you be more productive in the workplace. And it's fascinating. Oh, that's interesting. I think I know who you're talking about, who the other woman was, because there's like this iconic photo of them um, racing in the Olympic marathon together. And they, yes. And they, they helped each other. Right. Exactly. And they have like this awesome friendship training relationship that um, people really admire. So I will check that podcast out. I haven't heard of it and it sounds really good. Well, Michelle, thank you for being on the podcast today and just sharing some of your life story with the listeners. And I hope that if anyone hears anything, I mean, we kind of touched on all kinds of issues today um, in a short period of time. So I hope that people will connect with you. We'll have all that information in on the uh, podcast notes and um, we'll see you next time on Worth Your Time. Well, thank you so much for listening to that conversation today. And to everyone who's been listening, I appreciate every tweet, every message, just every inkling of support I get on this podcast. Um, thanks to everyone who's left a rating and review so far. If you haven't done that yet, if you've been listening, if this is your second or more episode, it would mean so much to me if you would head over to iTunes, leave a rating and review, and feel free to shoot me a message. Let me know you did it. You'll definitely get major props and high fives from this corner of the room. Either way, thank you so much for listening, guys, and I will see you next week on Worth Your Time.
This episode was brought to you in part by the Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.